today what we're going to be talking about is what does it mean to be family on purpose? What's it mean to be family on purpose? All right, now uh, I'm going to give you, I'm going to use a word here, a, a word called membership, all right? Church membership. This is something that a lot of times, depending on what your background is, what's happened in the Whatever's brought you to this point in this day in your life to be sitting inside of what would be called a local church context, like, there's some baggage, all right? Now, some of that could be great baggage. Some of that could be negative baggage. But when I use these words, like membership, I know we all have an association. And I want to tell you, um, for me, I, I was born and raised in a pastor's home. My dad's been a Southern Baptist pastor my whole life. He's a drug dealer until two years before I was born, and the Lord wrecked his heart changed his life, um, really encountered my mom in a unique way, did that all on one afternoon, and everything, everything changed after that. So two years later, when I was born, I was born into a pastor's home instead of a drug dealer's home. Lord did a unique work in my family, got to, man, got to grow up in a, in a house where I was discipled well, where I was taught the beauty of what community looks like, the beauty of what it means to live in such a way as to, as to be externally living and not always focused internally on what's going on just in my own home. And it was, it was beautiful. It was discipled well, mostly by my mom. Just kidding, Dad. He was great, too. He's sitting right there. No, I was discipled incredibly well by my parents. But even in that, gosh, I, I had a lot of baggage that still meets me here as a 35-year-old man who's pastoring and trying to learn what it means to set the trajectory for a community. When I was 17 years old, I was at youth group, and uh, my youth group had, summer before my junior year, we had four people that were at youth group one Wednesday night, I remember, and the next summer, we took over 200 people to youth camp. The Lord did an amazing work. We had this big charter bus at my church, and the, the charter bus, they let us use it to go pick up our friends in Jessamine County, my sister and I. We'd fill it up, 45 people normally every Wednesday night to take a youth group. Finally, one, one Wednesday night, my youth pastor came back from a trip down in Atlanta, and he came back and he said, guys, I want to teach you something. He talked about the blessing of God and how God only wants to bless. And he, he went so far, it sounds really good on the front end, but he went so far as to say, guys, I want you to know that no one in the 9-11 attacks in New York City was a Christian. No one who died in those attacks, because God would not let something like that happen to a believer. And I was like, say what? You know, like, all right, dude's talking crazy. So I come home, like, mom and dad, I took notes. I'm like, here's what he said. I go to my youth pastor. I'm like, bro, this is, this is a little weird. You're getting a little bit off here. And we got to meet and gather with him and my dad. And he said, guys, this is just what I believe now. And so I stopped going to youth group. Unfortunately, you can't really casually stop going to youth group when you take 45 of your friends every Wednesday. And so what ended up happening was I stopped going to youth group and he started preaching against me by name on Wednesday nights. My old church friends would tell me all the things that, you know, I was done, I had done wrong. And I got jaded. My dad was on staff at the church, so I still had to go on Sundays and see those people and see the youth pastor. And it was just a it was just a difficult a difficult time and season for me. Right before my senior high school, in the middle of all that, I go to a camp and the Lord wrecks my heart. Tell people he lit me on fire in a way I've never been able to recover. And I got to see the next year, my senior year of high school, I got to see revival happen. I watched like as many as about 70 of my friends give their lives back to Jesus for falling in love with him the first time. Then I went to college, 
saw an amazing work of God my sophomore year of college at Campbellsville University. Left school, moved to Lexington. Watched the Lord do an incredible work here on the University of Kentucky's campus when I was 21 and 22. And it shook everything. I mean, it was like, and I began to see God move and work and do incredible things. And everything that I saw God do, he did outside of the church. And my conclusion was, well, God does his best work outside of churches. But unfortunately, if I was going to tell you about the fruit of those things that happened, those three near revivals that I saw, there's no lasting fruit. It was because there was no, there was no family, there was no leadership, there was no structure within it. And I saw God begin to do things that I could tell did not get to finish because it was not a structure. And I began to ask the Lord for the last 10 years or so, God, what does that look like? Right after that, my dad planted a church in his living room. And here I was jaded, didn't like the concept of church, wasn't into that. Wanted to do all the, everything I did in the living room outside of a, of a local congregation. And I watched God do an incredible work through that small community. And that was one of the communities that, that merged together to form this community last year. And I got to see the Lord do a work of healing in me, convincing me, Kurt, you can do incredible things by yourself, just you and Jesus. But you'll do more when you're submitted to other people and do that together. So, guys, we've been family, like what I wanted to say is kind of family organically. It's been 15 months that Commonwealth City Church has been going here in this space. 15 months. We've been family organically, and God's done incredible things. I could give you a, a sweet list of amazing works that God's done in and through you, many of which you guys are a part of. But what I want to talk about today is what would it mean for us to begin to be family on purpose? You know, when I first started this this journey of church planting, and like this is one of those weird things. Like people ask me sometimes, like, "What do you do?" And I'm like, oh, "What do I say to that question?" You know, I'm a, I preach. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. And sometimes I go with I'm a church planter, and they're like, "Hold on, what? Like, can you buy those as seeds as Walmart? You know, like in the in the garden section?" Um, but this concept of being a church planter uh, was something that was birthed in my heart when I was really a seminary student. Um, kind of taking in just a recognition of how the gospel moves, how it's moved through the planting of churches uh, historically. I've, I've said before, like a history lesson, basically from Paul planting churches in Turkey to like present day. I've done this before in here where you walk through like all these dates um, that, the, that the gospels move through people. But as I started to think about my history with churches, you know, it's similar. My dad's a Southern Baptist pastor grown up in church my whole life. I've been around the things of church for as long as I can remember. I remember my role as a kid um, was that under the front row of my home church was like a little briefcase and it had a Polaroid camera in it. And that was before those were cool. Like those are cool now to like go back to Polaroid moments. And you know, there was a, there was like a, a song about shaking things like a Polaroid picture, you know? So like that was, some of us know that very well. Um, <laughs> they used to sit under the front row of, my, of the pew of my church, and when someone would come to join the church that my dad pastored, the, this is what it looked like. You know, they, they said, I, I would walk, they would walk down the aisle during the slow part of the last song that you would sing right before you left, and they would shake his hand, and they would sit down with a little index card and fill some stuff out, and then he would get back up at the end, and he was like, okay, this couple wants to join the church. 
who agrees? And everybody's like, I do, you know, like, let's, everybody raise your right hand, say I, you know, people would, I agree, and then they would come around and shake all their hands, and then at the end, I would snag the Polaroid camera, and I would take a picture of them on purpose, okay, this wasn't like I, wasn't like a paparazzi moment, and then I would put that in the bulletin board in the hallway, and then that would also get featured uh, in terribly pixelated in our church bulletin the next week, you know, a picture of, of the new family, and that was joining the church, and then I've worked in churches of different contexts, and um, you know, been all over the place, and I've seen, like, church membership be like this compartmentalized, check the boxes, this is what it means to contribute, this is what it means to have things expected of you, this is what it means to be part of this team, this is what it means to wear our jersey, so to speak. And, and planning a church, one of the things that really drove me was the concept of not planning a church service. We, talk, we get to talk to church leaders and potential church planners often, and we say, you're going to be tempted to plant a church service. What I mean by that is to have talented people sing songs and lead worship and say things and read scripture and preach and to just do that every single week. But the work of planting a church is recognizing like the family of God and the work of making disciples, the work of seeing that family grow by adoption. Um, as the New Testament would invite us into. Old Testament, God's family grew by people having kids, procreation. Literally, Abraham, I want you to have a bunch of kids. Be fruitful, multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, these are some of the first commands. The New Testament, our family is added to by adoption through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so our family doesn't grow by who your grandpapa is anymore. My granddad was a Southern Baptist preacher. Great. What is your relationship with Jesus? Have you been adopted into his family that's how it grows. And so what we start to think about the concept of what it meant to not just church plant, but to family plant. I think this invited us into seeing church membership or family on purpose in a whole different way. Because here's the thing. I, don't, I know that I come now statistically from like a, a family dynamic that is probably the minority. That two parents that have both still married, loved Jesus their whole life, um, raised me up in those things. But the things they demonstrated to me, like when I, if I'm looking at my life as a kid, and this might not be everybody's story, but I think this is the story that we're invited into in the family of God. This, my, my story might not be everybody's. But I didn't have value in my family when I started contributing. Like, I didn't get a name when I was able to mow the yard. Okay, my dad tells a joke sometimes that I prayed for a lawnmower, and Julie, which is my mom's name, Julie found out she was pregnant. Ha, 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 right? That makes sense? Y'all gets that? I'm the lawnmower? Okay, good. I'm glad y'all got it. Um, but I didn't get a name when I started contributing. Like, I didn't get a name when I started being able to check chores off the list. Like, I got a name at the point of my birth. I had value even when I did nothing but inconvenience the leaders of my household by, like, having dirty diapers and, like, not being able to bathe myself and crying all through the night. Like, even as a little bitty kid, I had value, I had purpose, I had identity, and I had belonging separate from anything I was going to contribute, invest, or provide. Do all of our churches look that way? Or do we say that you have value and you have placement and you have name and you have jersey, like if you're on the team, you have notoriety when you can contribute? And so we started asking the question of what would it look like for us to say, we do family on purpose, it's recognizing 
that value and, you know, like just naming you and all that stuff happens not at your physical birth, but at your birth again, at your rebirth and who you are in the kingdom of God. Real quick, I want to invite you into, there's a statement that one of the guys in our, in our community made, and I love this. I love this. We're, we've been asking this question, why be family on purpose instead of just being family organically? You know, why not just come to a place on Sunday, do life naturally, like, you know, hope to connect with people who are Christians. Why do that with so much intentionality? When we were asking about that. He said, if it's not in the Bible, I'm not interested. But if it's biblical, I'm all in. And so today, the discussion that we're going to have from here on out, talking about the way that God planted his church and his kingdom, this side of heaven is a gift to that side of heaven, is going to be walking through why we believe that this invitation is something that the Bible not only demonstrates and recommends, but really necessitates. Yeah, so let's start with a little church history, shall we? That's a fun topic. Um, we're going to start with a guy named Simon Peter. Now, some of you guys know Simon Peter in the Bible. Some of you all maybe have no idea who I'm talking about. Um, there's a couple books that he authored, The Gospel of Mark is kind of his gospel from his perspective because John Mark, Mark, who is the author, was kind of like Peter's right-hand man. And so it's going to be a little more, um, you know, a little more with kind of through his vantage point. He clearly was a really important disciple. So Jesus had 12, the 12, capital T, you see it all through the New Testament or all through the Gospels. Of that 12, he had three that he was like extra close with. A guy named Peter, a guy named James, and a guy named John or John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as we're reading through the Gospel of John. Those three people kind of got to see and do and participate in some things that not everybody did. They got to do this thing at the, on top of a mountain called a transfiguration, where Jesus, like, starts to literally carry the countenance of, what it, of, of divinity. Like, they could see God visible, and they got to see him hanging out with two fathers of the faith, like Moses and Elijah. Uh, they got to experience, they were some of the first, Peter was one of the first called disciples. You know, put your nets down, follow me immediately. Uh, he, he got to hear some of, of all the teachings of Jesus. He got to walk on water. So Peter, like, is in a category unlike anyone else, that he got to walk on water out and encounter Christ also walking on water. He, he gets told that, that upon him, and Kurt's going to talk about this later, upon him, it's going to be the rock in which Jesus builds his church. So he was like the first kind of commissioned church father, the kind of the first commissioned church pastor in the New Testament. Um, it, it goes on to say that he's going to deny Jesus. He does that three times and then gets lovingly restored post-resurrection from Christ himself. But there are two things that Jesus taught that had to be pretty significant to Peter. And he was around all the teachings, so all the things we read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like Peter would have had a front row seat to them. And one of them is Matthew 24, as it comes up on the, on the screen. And it's a, a moment where Jesus is talking about kind of the end of times. And he said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Peter gets to hear this. He gets to listen to that, wants to be responsive to that. And he also sees the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus teaching this as well. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so these are great statements that we utilize often, we, we, we really lean into often, but Jesus also said some like weird stuff in John chapter 14. And he said this to, to the disciples there when he said, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna prepare, if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. So Jesus is like inviting these guys. He tells these guys, and we'll get there as we study through John, I'm going to leave and I'm going to be gone for a while. There will be a reunion, but it's not going to happen right away. Now, a lot of times we, we kind of look through these guys in the Bible, these characters, and we, we see them as caricatures. We see them almost as cartoon characters. Like, oh, what's Peter gotten into today? You know, or like, oh, he's silly. Like I heard a pastor say one time, he said, I totally expect when I get to heaven, first thing Peter's going to do is he's going to walk up and slap me across the face and be like, you painted me out to be a dummy your whole ministry career. You know, because we do that often. We like paint him into these categories. But like he was, a, he was the oldest disciple, likely, um, we have some scriptural evidence of that. He, he was a professional fisherman. He was able to strategize. He was able to think. He was able to analyze things. And so let's put yourself in his shoes for a moment. You're Simon Peter. If, anybody's, if anybody holds Jesus as their hero, you do. Hopefully you do as yourself. But if anybody sees Jesus as their hero, like the, the guy that was the oldest, least desirable disciple, Jesus called him to be his disciple. Jesus put his hands on him and said, upon you I'm going to build my church. Jesus lovingly restored him. Jesus did all these things with Peter. If, he's, if he is anybody's hero in the Gospels, he's Simon Peter's hero. And the hero of his life, his best friend, his hero, his savior, his redeemer, has said, I'm going to go away but there will be a way for you to reunite with me, and this is it. You have to tell my story to the ends of the earth. So again, put yourself in Peter's shoes. You watch him die on a cross. You deny him three times. You see him resurrect. He restores you lovingly. He commissions you to go and, and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit falls on you, and you like preach the most powerful sermon in the history of humanity, where tons of different people can hear it in their own language. All this stuff happens. What are you going to give your life to? Well, hopefully you're going to give your life to hang out with your hero again. And how are you going to hang out with your hero? You're going to preach this gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the birthing of the mission to the church. Does that add an extra motivation to somebody like Simon Peter? You bet it does. And when it does, because he wants to preach it to the ends of the earth... It's clear that the mission of God gets a church, and it's led by a guy named Peter. It's led by a guy named um, Philip. It's led by a guy named, you know, James and John. It's led by guys named Paul. The mission of God gets a church, and the reason that it gets a church is because all through the scriptures, the Lord sets up frameworks for us to flourish. You know, I don't Again, Southern Baptist guys here, we can't talk about um, being, you know, wine connoisseurs. But the best wine in the world, it's kind of a joke, you can laugh at that. The best wine in the world doesn't grow in a heap on the ground somewhere, Spain or Italy or Napa Valley. It doesn't just like a wad of vines. It grows through a beautifully articulated or beautifully constructed trellis that's set up for its flourishing. And in the exact same way, like, we have frameworks set up for our flourishing that the, the word of God invites us into, like, that the greatest mission of God, do you think that the, in the greatest mission of God on the planet to reunite all things unto him, he's going to say, all right, 
this whole time, I've like set these things up, but now you do you. It's good. You do you. Just, you got it. You do you. No, he doesn't do that. That would be careless. And we have a God that takes great care of us. And so we want to invite you into looking at the global understanding of that and then kind of our local understanding of that. So when I, th- when I say the word church, how many people had a building pop in their head? You can be honest. All right. Yeah, yeah that's, guys, for us, one of the interesting things that we're dealing with, in my life anyway, in my own heart and probably in many of yours, is that when I, when I hear these words, these terminologies, like I, I have these things I associate with it. When I hear church, I think of a place. I think of a building. And just know, just outright, let's go ahead and just put this out on the table. If when you hear the word church, if you think of a facility, or if you think of something you do one time a week, you're wrong. And I'm wrong. Because that's what pops in my head. I get this. When I hear church, immediately you know what pops in my head? White building, kind of a roof that's pretty high, and a steeple on top. That's what I think of. You know what? If I write church in my, in my iPhone, that's what pops up on my emojis too. You know what I mean? Like this is the association that we make, and it's wrong. And not only is it wrong, it'd be one thing if it's like, oh, yeah, that's a bad thing to associate. But it's, it's actually biblically dangerous. Because for us, oftentimes in our culture, church is something you go to. But in Scripture, church is something you go do. Okay? That has to be true because it rhymed. You know? All right? Yeah, just kidding. All right. So anyway, Matthew 16, 18. We're going to talk about the big C church, like the global church and the global perspective. And the thing is... When I, when I hear the word church, if I know, if I know that I'm associating with something that the Bible does not associate it with, that means that we've got to fix it. We've got to repair it. So when I hear the word church, what should I think? And one of the sweetest examples of this is actually from the life of Peter. Peter tells Jesus, he's like, Jesus, like, you have the words of life. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus tells him, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My father told you that. My father just whispered it in your ear, and then it came out of your mouth. He said, Peter, you are a rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is really unique. Because what he's talking about here is the church is mobile. If there's going to be a structure, there's going to be something that stays still, there's going to be something that has a rooftop. It's, it's hell. It's not the kingdom of God. Do you see that? The gates of hell will not prevail. Church doesn't have gates. The church has swords. The church has armor. We don't have gates. Now, the thing about this is he's telling Peter, like, I'm, I'm going to build something on you. And the thing I'm going to build on you is not going to be a structure. It's not going to be pieces of real estate. It's going to be a mobile community that wreaks havoc on the kingdom of darkness. Now, the cool thing is Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about this church, like that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Now, when it talks about us being predestined in there, it says that we are predestined as a community, like that we are predestined to go and do this Churching. All right. I heard somebody tell me one time that the word, the word in Scripture is ecclesia. All right. It's the Greek word for church. You probably think of 
Anybody take Spanish growing up in high school? All right. What is the Spanish word for church? Anybody know? Iglesia. That's right. They're really close. That's on purpose. Spanish people took it from, from Greek. Okay, so ecclesia. And it's the gathered ones who gather. Now, it's a group of people. It is a noun, but it's also with this implication of being a verb. That church is not just something you are, it's something you do. You ever thought about, like, what would it mean to leave here on a Sunday and to go churching? You ever thought about that? Because Scripture's thought about it. And it's what we're being invited into. You got all these other moments. You got, now the, the things about like the promises of God in his word. They're given to his church. Now that does not mean that they are given to a building or a group of, or to the place where people meet. The promises of God are given to those who are part of his kingdom, who become members of his family by adoption through the blood of Jesus. Promises like all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's not for structures. That's for the kingdom, the people that have been bought and paid for by his blood and have come into friendship and relationship with him. Other promises like the immeasurably more than we could dare to ask or think from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. This is for the kingdom of God and those individuals who love Jesus. The fact that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He's not talking... This is good news to me. He's not talking about Commonwealth City Church. He's not talking about Southland Christian or the Church of Christ next door. He's talking about the kingdom of God on mission, mobile together. So we've got this big global, capital K kingdom, capital C church. Um, we know that it exists on all parts of the world. We even, we even are, are dutifully responsible to see that it happens. I mean, Butch... Just got back from basically a world tour. I mean, how many countries? Six different countries. How many plane rides? 16 different plane rides to communicate the story of the kingdom of God to the uttermost parts of the earth. We want to be dedicated to that. We have a dedicated international ministry, a ministry to international students, because we know that they're going to be going back to the places that they're from and to the places that they call home to be able to be couriers of the gospel. But we also know that while this big C, like global church exists, it does have local chapters. And I want to kind of invite you into that. Um, biblically, I want to invite you. And I want you to take our word for it. We don't stand on some authority because we happen to be like positioned about, you know, two and a half feet taller than you. We have, we, we want to try to use some authority because we want to stand on this. We want to stand on the word of God um, and, and what it invites us into. That the, that the participation in a local expression of the kingdom of God is not just something the Bible recommends. All of us know recommendations. I just had, I just had LASIK surgery um, last weekend. So if you're like, oh, there was something new about Andrew. He doesn't have his glasses on. It's because I don't need them anymore. This also is bad when I choose to wear glasses for fashionable reasons, and you can jeer me for that later. Um, but, and we will, yeah, I'm sure you will. I have my post-op follow-up with my eye doctor. And, you know, he tells me I've got to, like, wear these shields over my face for, for sleeping in because I don't want to rub my eyes and, like, potentially hurt the incision that the laser made on my eyeball. It's kind of gross. Um, and maybe hurt that, and so I have to wear these I hate these shields. These shields are miserable. They get sticky tape all over my face. Like, they move. They get stuck on my hair and on my beard and all sorts of stuff. And so I'm like, I wonder how much I've got to wear them. 
You know, like, what is the recommended amount of wear versus the essential or required amount of wear? And lo and behold, I hope Blake doesn't tune into this. Lo and behold, I stopped wearing my shields like three days in, and I'm like, uh, if I rub my eyes, I rub them, we'll fix it. You know, like, I just couldn't handle it anymore. Church membership is not some, like, recommendation. It's a necessitation. And we, I don't even want to use that word membership. I, I told myself not to use it, and then I used it. Being family on purpose is not some recommendation. It's a necessitation. I want to invite you into this. There's a number of places there are in Scripture. It's going to be a little bit of a journey. Bryce, if you're ready for me back there. Um, we're going to start in Hebrews 13. And I'm going to give you a number of Scripture references. And here's why. We could just camp out in one and preach the Dickens out of it. All right? We could. But... The fact that it is littered throughout the New Testament, I think, strengthens the argument. The fact that it's not in a one-off place or in, oh, that context or, oh, just in that specific scenario, but the fact that it is sprinkled throughout the counsel of God in his word says this is something that we should pay attention to. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, we kind of went through this um, when we went through the book of Hebrews, but we knew we were going to get to this, so we didn't put a ton of emphasis on it. It says this, obey your leaders and submit to them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm just kidding. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no benefit to you or no advantage to you. Um, when I read that, like my first gut reaction is to bristle. Like submit. Ugh, I don't like that word. Or have they earned it? Or can I trust them? You know, and like for me growing up specifically, like my church leader was also my dad. So that was like an extra level of some bristling going on of like, I don't know if I want to trust that or I don't know if I want to, if I want to, you know, entrust that to them, that kind of leadership or shepherding. Uh, now, though, in this era of my life, I read this verse a little differently. And you might be thinking, oh, of course you do, Andrew. You read this because you want to lord over me. You want to tell me what to do. And you want to like, discipline me and like, you know, punish me. No, no, no. Here's the part that keeps me up at night. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Who, who am I supposed to give an account for is a question that paralyzes my heart sometimes. And here's why. Does this mean all believers everywhere? Because if so, there are Christians that blow up abortion clinics. I don't want them on my record. Just being honest never talked to them. They've never sat under my teaching, never sat across them at a coffee shop, never prayed with them. And it's like, if I have to give an account for, for them, like, yeah, you know, like, or, or, or there are, maybe we hear, you know, of Christians in our culture and context. And we think of like Westboro Baptist, you know, you know, the people I'm talking about, they like show up and do the protests and the signs and all kinds of craziness at everything from like the death of like funerals for members of the military and all sorts of things. Like, if I have to give an account for those people, I'm like, ha, no, Jesus, please not on my record. Like, make it on somebody else's. Like, I don't want that, I don't want that on me. So, so I know that's a selfish approach, but I'm being really honest with where my mind goes when I read this passage with you. Because in thinking through, like, those extreme scenarios, I get to say, well, who, who might I give an account for? Who, who might have entrusted me or entrusted Kurt or entrusted us or the other leaders of this church as we, as we show them to you and prop them up for your good and for his glory, like 
Who, who might we be doing that for? And even that word, our keeping watch. You know, I, I think of that in my, I used to play softball in prison ministry a lot. Like I would go around, travel around and play on prison ministry softball teams. And I would always get really nervous because every single time we would play, the guards would always say, hey, glad you all are here. Uh, if a foul ball is hit over this line, do not cross it. They would say it just like that, like really loud, like seriously. And they would point up at a guy in the guard, and he would like tip his cap while holding like a big assault rifle. You know, and I'm like, oh, like this is officially out of play. You know, like can't go catch one over there. If you hit one over there, that, buddy, that ball is gone, buddy. You know, like can't go get that one. And when I think of watch over your, soul, your, your souls, that's what I think of. It's like somebody like standing up on guard, like making sure that you don't step where you need to step. If you actually get into the Greek language, this word watch means to be awake while you're sleeping. Like to be wakeful so that you can rest well. And when I start to think about like, oh, who, who might be the people that God has invited me into their life, invited them into mine, into Kurt's, so that we might be on guard for you to rest well in the things of the Lord. On the background of my phone are some little like metrics of success for Commonwealth City Church, little questions that I ask myself all the time. And the very first one says, it says, what does success at Commonwealth City Church look like? And the very first question says, are people resting in the finished work of Christ? Do you know how they rest well and how God has ordained them to rest well? If for people to lead them in the way that they watch over their resting and they're awake and on guard for them so that they might rest really, really well. The last part of this verse, it says, for that's of benefit to you. Now I'm reminded of Jesus and when he's teaching on prayer in Matthew chapter six, and he says that, you know, don't pray like the Pharisees who go on the street corner and they, you know, say outlandish things and draw a bunch of attention to themselves and speak like this lofty language for them being noticed, that's all the reward they get. And most of us read that passage and they, we say, okay, don't do that. Don't do those things. Don't pray that way. But there's a little like subtlety in there that says there's a reward to your praying. Did you catch that part? And the reward for the pharisaical prayer is they get noticed. Now we don't have clearly defined the reward for closet prayer but we are, it's implied that it's a whole lot better. That it's a whole lot better, that there is a greater reward than recognition from earthly eyes and earthly hearts for us to enter into our closet and pray. In the exact same way, it's kind of this nuanced language. That there is something of great benefit to you having someone watch over your soul. There's something of great benefit. And I want to kind of just run through a number of scriptures as we kind of look at this, Hebrews chapter 10, other places that we see this, Hebrews chapter 10, as it comes up, it says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good works, not giving up meeting together as some is in the habit of doing, so a local assembly, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, the day you get to be reunited with your hero, approaching. Acts chapter 20, 28, I'll show you another example. This is, uh, this is one of the early church. This is a church in Ephesus. And it says, keep watch over yourself and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is Paul writing to the leaders of the church at Ephesus. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, uh, it says this. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you 
who care for you and the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and live in peace with each other. If you were to look back, the flip the page earlier on 1 Thessalonians and go to chapter 4, it says this. This is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. How does that happen? How does that happen in a flourishing context where you have people caring and serving and watching over your soul? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this is a, a very um, notable passage on church discipline. That's a fun word. We're going to talk about that more when we talk about elders in a, in a couple weeks. I just want to give you two examples from verse 4 and verse 12 and 13. This is Paul writing, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must call a meeting of the church. Does that mean like send out letters to the ends of the earth and saying, hey, you guys should all be here. This is for all. No, this is a local expression. I will be present with you in spirit, Paul saying this, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. And judge, it's a fun word in our vernacular, but what he means by judge is to basically to assess and to walk alongside and to like hold to and to be accountable with those who are sinning, God will judge those on the outsides, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Acts 6 is an example of people electing leaders, early church. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit of wisdom. We will give them, and full of the spirit, we will give them this responsibility. Then we as apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching in the word. Everyone liked this idea. Who's the Everyone. The members of the local expression of the kingdom of God in that place. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas. I should have done more study on these. And Nicholas of Antioch, the earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who were prayed, prayed for them and laid their hands on them. In Romans 16, this one's not going to be on the screen you see Paul concluding his writing of Romans, and he's talking about all the people that should be endeared to one another. In Amos chapter 3, verse 3, this is an Old Testament approach. It says this, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? Think about that for a second. You know the three-legged race you used to do at relays in elementary school? Can you go, can you win the race if you're not in agreement with which way you're going? And really the last, the last thing I want to invite you into before Kirk kind of concludes with us today is that there are, there are more expressions of this sanctif sanctifying work being lived out in local expressions. Uh, and, and most importantly, in the form of this phrase, one another, in Scripture. And we heard, uh, we've been listening to some sermons and some resources about this from a, a church that we're a big fan of in, in Dallas, Texas, called the Village Church. And they have a, a whole uh, segment. And so I'm just going to read uh, part of what they encourage us to recognize, that there are 59 places in the New Testament where they use the phrase one another. And so forgive me as I read off this, um, because this was too much for me to just have had memorized. But it says this as we talk about one another. I think the best way to see this is 59 one another's found in the New Testament. I'm just going to read through them quickly so you can get a bit of the rhythm of how God expects people, the kingdom of God, to interact together locally. The New Testament tells us 17 times to love one another. It tells us five times to serve one another tells us to accept one another, to strengthen one another, to help one another, to encourage one another, to care for one another, to forgive one another, to submit to one another, to commit to one another, to build trust with one another, to be devoted to one another, to be patient with one another, 
to be interested in one another. Uh, when Matt Chandler says this, he says, at that point, all the single guys in the room were like, I'm interested in a lot of one another's. You know, like, that was for you. Be accountable to one another, to confess to one another, to live in harmony with one another. Do not be conceited to one another. Do not pass judgment to one another. Do not slander one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. Admonish one another. Spur one another on toward love and good works. Meet with one another. Agree with one another. Be concerned for one another. Be humble with one another. Be compassionate with one another. Do not be consumed by one another. Um, we mentioned this earlier in Commonwealth Connect. That one's important. We're going to disagree on things from time to time. We want to promote oneness over sameness. But when sometimes we don't see things the same way, we don't consume one another. We don't devour one another. We don't bite each other and chew each other up. We don't stab one another in the back. We don't behave like that. We're not angry with one another. We don't lie to one another. We don't grumble to one another. We don't give preference to one another. We sing to one another. We're of the same mind. And it keeps going and going and going. And this language is kind of this word covenant. So there's contracts and covenants. Um, you are probably most familiar with contracts in the form of cell phone companies. You know, like trying to get out of them, trying to stay in them. They tend to charge you more than they say. You tend to get frustrated about it. You know, all these things happen. If you break your end, you can bail out. If they break their end, they can bail out. But this concept of covenant, which exists big C, like global church, God towards us, is also something that we would invite our leaders to do with you, which is to say that we want to invite you, that we are covenanting as leaders of the local expression of the global kingdom of Commonwealth City Church. We are covenanting to you to do these one another things in hopes that you would reciprocate them to us. Not because you are, not because you contribute, not because you have value, not because you put your 10% in the boxes, none of that stuff, but because you're a valued, dignified member of the family of God. And as people who are honored and would be honored to care over your souls, to walk alongside you, to hold you accountable, to promote sanctification in your life. Like we would covenant that you, we require nothing from you to try to achieve these one another's in and among us. Um, but there are ways that we can all contribute to extending the mission and joining each other on fam with family on purpose together uh, to see the gospel flourish to the ends of the earth. So why, why would we take a Sunday deviate from going through the book of John and spend time talking about what it means to be a church member. Honestly, it's the same thing Andrew was saying about Peter. That man knew, if I can get the gospel to the ends of the earth, then I get to see my Jesus again. Because we're really just after the exact same thing. We got 2,000 years of human history that's gone on, 2,000 years of church history that's happened since then. But that's the invitation. Why talk about being family on purpose? Why talk about being in some official capacity part of a community? Because when we do this together intentionally, we get to do more damage to the kingdom of darkness. Last scripture I want to give you. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter's in there, and you almost see even just this kind of like look back to what he says in John and what he, what he remembers about Jesus telling him, like when this gets to the end of the earth, I'm coming back. 
And he says in there, he has, there's this phrase. It says that we are waiting for and hastening the day of Christ's return. All right, the first time I read that, I just kind of like slipped over it. And then I, I stopped. I was like, wait, wait, wait. Hastening the day of Jesus' return. Like that's what Scripture says. That the way that we live life with each other, that the way that we recognize who our leaders are, who we're doing kingdom with alongside of, that we're doing that intentionally rather than just simply organically so that we can have heaven be as crowded of a place as it possibly can. When we do that together, when we do that on purpose, the result and the fruit of that is our hope is that we're going to hasten the day of Christ's return. When I read that the first time, I was like, all right, Lord, if you were planning on coming back on a Tuesday, I want to live in such a way that you come back on Monday instead. You know what I'm saying? Like for us as a community, if it, I mean, if, all right, Jesus, if, if your return is supposed to happen like in an October of 2,573, like I want it to happen in September because of the way that this community does life with each other on purpose intentionally to see kingdom come in the city of Lexington. We want to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. We can do that very well individually because we have the spirit of God residing inside of us. But we do it much, much better together. So the invite is, let's hasten the day of return of Jesus. We're going to be stepping into this for a few weeks. So this isn't like the end of the discussion. I'm telling you more about but what this looks like for us here, what leaders do, what we expect a person who would be family on purpose at Commonwealth City to do. But right now, the invite is, is for us to pray, for us to go to the Lord and say, God, I get to be a steward of my life, each and every one of us in here. You get to be a steward of your own heart and soul. If you're in love with Jesus, that means that his spirit is inside of you and he is shepherding you, compensating for every weakness. If you're somebody who's in here and you don't know Jesus, then everything we're talking about, guys, results in this one really, really glorious invitation. And so you get to join the family of God and to go to the Father and say, God, I don't know exactly what they're talking about, but that family they talked about sounds pretty incredible and I want to be adopted into it. We'd love to walk you through what that means. Come up here and find one of us. But for the rest of us, as it looks like starting a conversation with our Father and saying, how do I steward the life that you've given me in such a way that it hastens the day of your return?